0: Stay up-to-date and engaged with the financial world. You're listening to the Wall Street Millennial Podcast. Throughout the 2000s and 2010s, Lebanon was a rapidly growing economy with a thriving tourism and financial services industry. They owed a large part of their economic success to a peg between the Lebanese pound and the U.S. dollar. This provides stability and confidence in the country's financial system. The official exchange rate is about 1,500 Lebanese pounds per dollar, and this number has hardly budged for the past three decades. But in 2019, it became apparent that the government's official exchange rate was a farce. On the black market, the exchange rate depreciated from 1,500 pounds per dollar to 38,000 today, meaning that the Lebanese pound has lost 96% of its value. Inflation has soared to 180%, the economy has contracted by almost 40%, half of the working-age population is unemployed, and 8 in 10 Lebanese people are living in poverty. At this point, the country's economy barely exists. For the past three years, commercial banks have frozen customer withdrawals, leaving millions of Lebanese unable to access their life savings. Even people with hundreds of thousands of dollars in their savings accounts are starving on the streets. Now, the country is heading towards a state of anarchy. A few weeks ago, a woman robbed a local bank with a toy gun. Instead of viewing her as a criminal, the crowd outside viewed her as a hero and she was robbing the bank for her own money. Her sister was in the hospital and unable to afford medical bills because their bank accounts were frozen. The trend of people robbing banks for their own money has increased and the country increasingly looks like a failed state. So how did Lebanon, which used to be a wealthy and thriving country, devolve to the point where people can't even access their own bank accounts? According to the World Bank, since at least 2016, the Lebanese government has been running what amounted to perhaps the world's greatest Ponzi scheme, which eight years later has culminated in a complete economic collapse. Throughout the 2000s and early 2010s, the Lebanese economy was doing very well. It's a beautiful country that attracts tourists from all over the world. They had a sophisticated banking sector with banking secrecy laws similar to those of Switzerland. This made it a popular place for international oligarchs and other shady businessmen to hold and transfer their money. And finally, hundreds of thousands of Lebanese would move abroad to work and send remittances to their families. The manufacturing sector in Lebanon is almost non-existent. Every year, they have a trade deficit, meaning that they import more than they export. They were able to fund this trade deficit thanks to foreign exchange inflows from sources mentioned earlier. The inflow of foreign currencies allowed the central bank to maintain its peg to the U.S. dollar and also allowed the government to spend liberally on public welfare programs. Most notably were their generous subsidies on fuel and electricity. However, this all changed in 2011 when the Syrian civil war broke out. Lebanon borders Syria and after hostilities broke out, 1.5 million refugees poured into the country. At the time, Lebanon's population was only 5 million, so they had the highest number of refugees per capita of any country in the world. Around the same time, the number of high-profile terrorist attacks started increasing from the likes of ISIS and similar organizations. This greatly diminished the level of tourism. Also, tensions between the regional powers of Saudi Arabia and Iran intensified, with Lebanon being caught in the middle. This made it more difficult for Lebanese citizens to find work in foreign countries, thus decreasing the amount of foreign currency remittances that their families received. Whenever a country has a massive decrease in exports, the currency depreciates. This makes foreign goods more expensive and decreases imports commensurately. In the case of Lebanon, tourism and foreign money remittances served as the de facto exports as they represented foreign currencies coming into the country. Thus, you would expect Lebanon's trade deficit to decrease as they no longer had the cash to fund imports. But surprisingly, their trade deficit stayed steady at roughly $15 billion per year after the Syrian civil war broke out. So how is this possible? It's because they refused to adjust the fixed exchange rate for the U.S. dollar. Without currency depreciation, there's no mechanism for imports to decrease. So the Lebanese people continued to import foreign products at the same rate that they had before the Syrian crisis. So is it really that simple? By just refusing to depreciate the exchange rate, had Lebanon found a way to have its cake and eat it too? The short answer is, of course not. The Lebanese government was building a giant house of cards that would inevitably come crashing down with devastating effects. The government and central bank knew that the currency peg was unsustainable. Instead of admitting defeat and abandoning the peg, they created a complex financial engineering mechanism which the World Bank would eventually compare to a Ponzi scheme. The main problem was that they didn't have enough US dollars, so they needed the Lebanese people and foreign investors alike to deposit more dollars into the Lebanese banking system. To accomplish this, they instituted their so-called swap policy in 2016. The scheme works as follows. First, the Ministry of Finance sold bonds to foreign investors denominated in U.S. dollars. The central bank would print Lebanese pounds to buy government bonds denominated in pounds. They would swap these pound-denominated bonds for the dollar-denominated bonds at a fixed exchange rate of 1,500 pounds per dollar. In theory, this shouldn't matter. As long as the peg holds, Lebanese pounds and U.S. dollars are interchangeable. The difference is that the Lebanese central bank can print pounds, but it can't print dollars. In the next stage, the central bank would effectively borrow U.S. dollars from commercial banks within the country. They would entice the banks by offering interest rates as high as 15%. But there was a catch. The interest payments would be made in pounds, not dollars. Again, this shouldn't matter so long as the peg holds. This was a great deal for the commercial banks as the central bank was giving them a 15% interest rate for what appeared to be risk-free. Because this arrangement with the central bank was so lucrative, the commercial banks had the incentive to get as many U.S. dollar deposits as possible. To this end, they offered interest rates as high as 10% to depositors. This convoluted scheme effectively allowed the central bank to convert its pounds to U.S. dollars, which the government could use to pay off investors who bought the U.S. dollar-denominated bonds. The reason that this was compared to a Ponzi scheme was because the commercial banks were effectively borrowing U.S. dollars to pay off U.S. dollar bondholders. Once the USD gets paid to bondholders, the commercial banks no longer have the cash to make good on the USD deposits. The only way they can keep this scheme running is if the USD deposits at the commercial banks continuously rise. That's why the World Bank called it a Ponzi scheme. Another feature of this scheme is that the main street banks become de facto extensions of the central bank because they are effectively lending their USD deposits to the central bank. If the central bank ran out of USD reserves, all the main street banks would collapse. Another problem with this scheme is that it required the government to issue huge amounts of USD-denominated debt, which the central bank would use as collateral to borrow from the commercial banks. Public debt increased to $95 billion in 2020, three times their GDP of $33 billion. To be fair, GDP fell significantly in 2020 as a result of the pandemic-related lockdowns. But the $95 billion of debt was still almost double their 2019 GDP of $52 billion. For a time, it was okay. The main street banks were able to attract an ever-growing deposit base by offering interest rates far higher than what you could get at U.S. banks. But the house of cards finally came down in 2019 when deposit growth turned negative. So what happened? All of this financial engineering did nothing to solve the issue of the trade deficit. So long as the pound stayed at its artificially high peg, there would be net outflows of U.S. dollars. And as the years went by, the problems were only compounded by the high US dollar interest payments that they had to pay to both the bondholders and the depositors. Like all Ponzi schemes, this system had to collapse eventually. The first cracks started to show in 2018, when some commercial banks started instituting daily limits and additional fees when people started trying to withdraw their US dollar holdings. Unable to freely convert their currency at banks, people started to get nervous, and unofficial exchange rates started to depreciate slightly. The unofficial exchange rate is the rate at which people trade currencies in unregulated settings such as bartering at a local market. The depreciation of the unofficial exchange rate spooked bank depositors and led them to lose trust in the financial system. So they started withdrawing their dollars from local banks. In a desperate attempt to keep the scheme afloat, the banks further increased their interest rates hoping that this would lure in new deposits which they could then use to pay the existing depositors. But by this point it was too late. Nobody trusted the banks anymore, and for good reason. Without having sufficient US dollar reserves, banks across the country instituted draconian withdrawal limits to a few hundred dollars per month, and in some cases they wouldn't allow people to withdraw anything at all. This was the beginning of the end, and there were mass protests on the streets. The official exchange rate remained unchanged, but by this point it was a complete farce, because there was no way to convert your pounds into dollars at any meaningful quantity. While this was happening, the central bank continued to print trillions of pounds to support the government's budget deficit. But this was of limited use, because much of the government's debt was in US dollars, which they now had no means of procuring. The unofficial exchange rate started collapsing, going from 10,000 to 20,000, and now it's all the way up to 38,000 pounds per US dollar. This is a 96% depreciation from the official exchange rate, which the government still claims to maintain. Things got exponentially worse in August of 2020, when a massive stockpile of ammonium nitrate exploded by accident in the port of Beirut, killing over 200 people and leaving 300,000 homeless. Ammonium nitrate is used in the production of explosives, among other things. The power of the blast was equivalent to 1.1 kilotons of TNT, or roughly 7% as powerful as the nuclear bombs used in Japan. The ammonium nitrate was brought to Beirut by a Russian ship called the Rosas. It was originally on its way to Mozambique but stopped in Beirut to pick up more cargo. According to the ship's former captain, the cargo they tried to pick up in Beirut was too heavy so they couldn't unload it. The Beirut Port Authority charged a fee for refusing to take the cargo, but the owner of the ship didn't have money to pay. So the boat just sat there and the dangerous cargo was left in the port for years. This debacle was viewed as a damning indictment of incompetence or possibly even corruption by the government all because they wanted to charge a few hundred thousand dollars of fees to the ship owner, they let this cargo sit in the port for six years, eventually causing the largest non-nuclear accidental explosion in history. In the wake of the scandal, the Prime Minister and his entire cabinet resigned, leaving Lebanon leaderless as they were heading into a severe economic crisis. With nothing left to support the pound's value, the prices of imported goods skyrocketed, and inflation soared to 150% in 2020 and more than 200% in 2022. This inflation has caused unspeakable pain to the Lebanese people, who are now facing 50% unemployment and an 80% poverty rate. The tourism and banking sectors, which used to make up the bulk of the country's economy, have collapsed to almost nothing. No tourist wants to visit such an unstable country, and the banking system has been exposed as a Ponzi scheme. To add insult to injury, many Lebanese people have tens or even hundreds of thousands of US dollars deposited in banks. But with the withdrawal freezes, the money is inaccessible and they are forced to live in poverty. In September of 2022, the situation reached a breaking point. People started to bring both real and fake firearms into bank branches and demand access to their savings. While these are technically bank robberies, the perpetrators are only asking for their own money and are widely supported by the local populations. The problem is, the banks simply don't have the cash. The only thing the central bank could possibly do is print more pounds and give this to the people instead of U.S. dollars. But with the unofficial exchange rate down 96%, it's unlikely that depositors would accept something like this. They deposited U.S. dollars and they want U.S. dollars back. The problem is, neither the banks nor the government have U.S. dollars to give them. The financial situation in Lebanon may sound abstract, so it's useful to explain it with a simpler analogy. Imagine you're a turkey farmer and you make a good living selling your turkeys. One year, there is a massive flood that covers half of your farm in water, so your turkey production is cut in half. This flood is the equivalent of the Syrian civil war and the resulting impact on Lebanon's tourism industry. Instead of cutting your expenditures to match your income, you decide that you want to maintain your current lifestyle for as long as possible. So you max out all of your credit cards and try every trick in the book to maintain your level of spending. This is basically what the Lebanese central bank did with their financial engineering to prop up the pound. And in an interview from January of 2021, the longtime central bank governor, Riyad Salameh, all but admitted as much. Lebanon was able to maintain its trade deficit and import $65 billion of goods from 2017 to 2019. But this was merely kicking the can down the road. These deficits were unsustainable and a crash was inevitable. Lebanon was once a prosperous and growing economy that faced some problems starting in the early 2010s. Instead of biting the bullet, they instituted financial engineering schemes to keep up the facade of their peg with the U.S. dollar. Now they're on the verge of becoming a failed state, and it will take years, if not decades, for them to recover. You've been listening to the Wall Street Millennial Podcast. Don't miss a minute wherever you go. Wall Street Millennial, signing out.